Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys, let me start here with a quick reminder. Every weekday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, we're going to be doing quick live sanity breaks on YouTube where I will be uh, speaking with and meditating with some of the world's best meditation teachers. We have an incredible lineup this week, next week, and beyond. The format is we start with five minutes of meditation, then we take questions from you in the audience. Um, It's, as I said before, free, and we're going to be doing it for the duration of this crisis and and as long as it takes to help us all get through this thing. You can join us at 10percent.com slash live. That's 10%, one word, all spelled out, dot com slash live, or just go to YouTube and search for 10% Happier. I'll put a link in the show notes. Okay, let's get to uh, this week's episode. It's a good one. Quickly want to note that on an audio uh, level, we're we're doing our best right now to improve uh, the technology of our home recording game. Uh, and I think we're actually, this, this episode is going to be better than past ones, uh, past recent ones. But bear with us as we, as we continue to improve. We don't want to be sending people into studios because of the necessity for physical distancing right now. Our guest this week is Sharon Salzberg, and uh, if, given the deeply suboptimal circumstances in which we find ourselves right now, you find yourself cycling through anxiety, depression, anger, apathy, all those difficult emotions, if that's the case for you, I suspect this conversation with the legendary meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg may elevate your mood. It worked for me because I was in a, I'll be honest, I was in a bit of a dark place when I hopped on the line with her for this uh, for this conversation. I was stuck in a, in a story about how this pandemic is a waking nightmare with no expiration date. But there's something really powerful about talking to somebody who has spent 50 years dedicated to meditation and Buddhism. Sharon provides a, a reframing, a dose of perspective, and practical science-based skills. Plus, like many meditation teachers, many of the best of them at least, she is very funny. So here we go, Sharon Salzberg. Enjoy. All right, Sharon, thanks for coming. Appreciate that. Well, thank you. Coming is a <laughs> is an odd term. It's really kind of staying where I yes, am. But yes, exactly. You didn't you didn't have to go anywhere for this. So just yeah. get over to the computer. How how are you doing in uh, shelter and place? Well, I'm I'm doing pretty well. I'm in Barry, Massachusetts, in my home, and it's it's pretty peaceful. And I mean, obviously, I go through all kinds of things, like everybody else, you know, anxiety and sadness, and uh, it just feels like this enormous unknown. And uh, but when I reframe the the current experience as kind of being on retreat, then I think, oh, right, I know how to do this. <laughs> just for the uninitiated barry massachusetts b-a-r-r-e massachusetts is in central mass which is uh you are you have a house on the grounds of uh, mm-hmm. the insight meditation society which you co-founded with jack cornfield and joseph goldstein many mm-hmm. many years ago um but so i'm interested to hear you say that you go, you're going through a lot mm-hmm, anxiety mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. other things. I think I think that's actually useful for 
for us us civilians to hear that a <laughs> that, that venerated meditation teacher has uh, has feelings. Yes, well, I mean, the anxiety I think is it's almost biological. You know, it's like whoa. And then uh, I am just grateful all the time for the kind of training I had through meditation practice. So, for example, it's it's um, that conjecture about the future. Like, what if this happens and that happens? And, you know, the Insight Meditation Society, will it be able to open? When will it be able to open? How will it be able to open? You know, and I think, you don't know anything. You know, this is all useless. It's It's a useless expenditure of your life energy. Just come back to the moment. Deal with what's in front of you. Remember to try to stay connected to others. Um, and that's all I can do right now. And so I'm, I'm just so grateful that I've had all these years of like watching my mind go off and remembering in the kindest way, the most gentle way, just come back, you know, deal with what's in front of you. You said a th- you very graciously agreed to come on our new 10% happier live experiment where we're doing live guided meditations in the afternoons. And you said something that has really stuck with me, which is that there's this thing about anxiety. The, the not knowing yeah. is actually not that bad. What is bad? Well, I'll stop saying it. You, you continue. Okay. <laughs> so what I said was that in, in uh, my experience of sitting with fear and kind of the perspective of mindfulness, let's say, if you're sitting and experiencing something like fear, you're not particularly concerned with what you're afraid of, you know, and how it could resolve or how did you get to this sorry place? You should be better than this, but actually looking at the feeling itself. So it's a kind of pivot of attention. And when I've done that and I've looked at fear in my body, I've looked at fear, kind of the play of fear in my mind. What I've seen is that for me, that despite the world's pronouncement that we're afraid of the unknown, which of course can be true, I'm mostly afraid when I think I do know and it's going to be really bad. And it's the stories that I tell myself that really get me going. And even in the midst of that, if I remind myself, you know what? You don't know. Then there's space. And and there's actually kind of a relaxation or, or peace right there. Uh, I... That really lands for me. I wouldn't have been able to articulate that, but it's it's exactly that. That um, I think what I don't like is the uncertainty, but what I really don't like is the horror movie I'm making in my own mind. Yeah, yeah, of course. And we we invest in it. You know, it's like it's our creation, and then and then we claim it as necessarily true. So so I'm just walk me through a moment how it goes in your mind in an actual moment of anxiety. What for you after decades of practice, what happens in your mind when you notice you're spinning off? Well, I mean, part of it is, you know, it's very physical. My heart starts beating faster and and I can feel um this is just a certain kind of energy moving through my body. And then I watch the thoughts start to play out, you know, first this is going to happen, then that's going to happen. And what if we can't ever open again? And what if that, you know, and then if I remind myself either you don't know, or just breathe, just take a breath. You're not going to resolve this entire problem on behalf of the world right now, all in one chunk. Just take a breath, come back to yourself. It's oddly enough, it's the same gesture of the mind that I had so much contempt for when I first 
heard about meditation, I thought that's stupid. <laughs> like you put your mind somewhere and it goes off somewhere else and you let go and you come back. I thought I was in India and I thought I came all the way to India for this. Like it's ridiculous, you know, but there it is all these years later in, in the midst of this extremely intense situation. It's like the same gesture of the mind. And I think how amazing to have been practicing this. And what's empowering, I think for me, and I hope for anybody listening to this is that you can get better at this if you do it for 50 years, but you can have done it for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, mm -hmm. a couple of years, and anybody can do what you're describing. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I think it's the regularity of practice. I don't think it, it takes such a long time to kind of reinforce that muscle group. And then you remember, like in the middle of a bad conversation with somebody, you know, where you're starting to feel that particular anxiety or you realize something and you, you're not sure you really did it properly or whatever it is, you know, and you can feel that kind of anxiety. You can do it right there. You know, you have the physical signal of what's happening in your body and that's reminding you, okay, take a breath, just come back. Let's deal with what's here. So let's do uh, Sharon Salzberg's survival guide here. Because um, <laughs> uh, so mindfulness, noticing when your mind is raced off into some fearful projection of the future mm -hmm. and then catching it, even if it's gone on for several days or several hours or yeah, several yeah. minutes, whatever, catching it, it's never too late to catch it, return to, you know, to your breath yeah. or to take yeah. a deep breath. So that's that's a tried and true technique, which is easier said than done, but but can be done. Um and for sure, formal meditation training helps. What are the other, you, you mentioned a few other things that you were doing to kind of ground yourself. Mm -hmm. And some, some of it had to do with, if I recall from two minutes ago, social connection, which is <laughs> not an easy thing to achieve uh, when we're all being told to stay isolation. alone. Yeah. That's true. It, it's got several aspects to it. One is about kindness. And I think it begins with kindness toward oneself, because I think we have to be very forgiving of what we feel. We may think I shouldn't be this anxious. I shouldn't have this going on. I should be better. I should really, we cannot control what arises in our minds. We can influence it, but we can't control it. And we have to be kinder to ourselves in terms of what we may be going through, how we hold what comes up and whether we act on it and alienate everybody or whatever it is. That's a different question. You know, that may be more where our responsibility lies is not to take everything to heart and not to also blame ourselves for, for what's going on. And that kindness toward ourselves, I think, extends into uh, really, first of all, noticing others, even if we're not physically communicating and, and just being aware of the struggles that people are going through and, and caring in some way, because if we learn anything from this, it should be that we are really part of an interconnected universe, that we're not actually cut off and alone, even if we sense that we are at different times. And so I like when I was uh, in New York City, the last physical gathering I had teaching, I was sitting in the audience. This was at the Rubin Museum. And before I got up onto the stage, someone came and sat down next to me. So this was about 12 days ago or something like that. And uh, she was very, very anxious, this person. I tried suggesting something and then something else. And 
and none of it seemed to be making a difference for her. And then I finally said, well, is there anybody you can help in this time? And she kind of lit up. It just touched something inside of her. And she felt, I, I guess, capable and some capacity within her and a sense of resource. And she said, yeah, you know, I do have this neighbor who's elderly and maybe could use some help shopping. You know, I could slip a note under her door. Now, of course, there's different uh, systems in place. So I don't know if that physical act would actually work, you know, but there's some ability to reach out and to really care, which I think is going to actually be the fundamental juice that's going to keep us going. That's such an interesting idea. I see this in my own mind too. The idea that an antidote, it's not going to be a forever antidote, but it's, it, it can work uh, in, in a moment. And I've, and I've found personally that it can last for quite a while. An antidote to anxiety, much of which is self-centered. You know, what's going to happen to me? Obviously, mm-hmm. it's not all totally self-centered because you may be worrying about what's going to happen to your loved ones, what's going to happen mm-hmm. to our country, the world, et cetera. But a lot of anxiety, at least in my case, is self-centered. The antidote can be just, it's almost so, it's almost so obvious and, and after school special that it's annoying to even utter the words, but the antidote can be doing something for other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I noticed the difference in my mind state between uh, what's it like when I'm obsessing about how many likes on my most recent tweet I may have received. And what is it like when I'm running errands for my elderly neighbor? Those are two. The flavor is entirely different. I'm going to go like your tweets. I didn't realize that that was an issue. (laughs) My God. That's just, we're just scratching the surface. (laughs) No, but I mean, I think it's really, really true. Somebody said to me that in this situation, what was being awakened for her uh, were old issues that were, true about her childhood, about not having enough food. And that was terrifying, even though it's not at all her current situation. And I just said, you know, to her, one suggestion I made was maybe give a donation. It could be a very small donation to a food bank or something. You know, know that you're helping somebody, that you're enriching the life of somebody. And and she, too, kind of lit up, you know, with that, that that was a meaningful possibility. It shifted something inside of her to think about responding to that. You know, it's a pretty intelligent fear in a way, but also not real. And and so it, it somehow helped her realize maybe it's that fundamental issue that we're not alone. We're really not alone. And it's so easy to feel we are and we're so isolated and it's only me and uh, that every act of reaching out, however small, kind of undermines that myth and and brings us back to something that's actually true. But let's talk about that, because before you were saying, you know, one of the things that this situation brings home for you, if I heard you correctly, was the truth of interconnected mm-hmm, interconnectedness. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is inarguably true, a, a virus that somehow seems to have been developed in a so-called wet market in China affects all of us. Um, the, the object lesson in interconnectedness right there. And yet, if I'm stuck in my apartment alone, or I'm stuck in my house alone, 
Yeah, that theoretically makes sense, but I still feel really lonely. Well, people felt really lonely even before they were stuck in their apartments, apparently. You know that it's yeah, it's like an epidemic, and, and uh, that's it's a, why... It's another pandemic, actually. Yeah. You know, and it's so sad, and, and I really feel like um, n- not an effort to, especially now, you know, increase your social contacts. Like, I only have two friends, I need eight. But it's that sense of connection compared to alienation that we need to cultivate. And it's why nature is so healing or, you know, um, uh, I think why people are having, you know, virtual everything, you know, cocktail parties or musicals or, you know, that that there is some sense of being part of a whole. And, and it's a kind of education almost or it's like a it's a process of insight because it is true, you know, and I think, again, you could use, you know, the tools of mindfulness to see everything that undermines that and has you feel more alone and uh, take a leap, you know, into, and that's partly of course, why caring for others or, or extending, even doing like something like loving kindness meditation is an act of generosity. And so, uh, being in that position, I think, returns us to that to that understanding of interconnection. What do you think, out of curiosity, what do you think is a, if we're feeling awful right now, anxious or lonely, what's a better form of meditation for this moment? Mindfulness meditation, where you watch the breath, and then every time you get distracted, you start again, or loving kindness, otherwise known as metta meditation, where you envision systematically various people or animals and repeat phrases like, may you be happy, may you be safe. Which, which practice would you recommend for, for somebody who's struggling right now? I would probably say loving kindness, which I'm still hoping to hear you teach someday since you posted a loving kindness meditation on uh, ABC uh, news. And so I think partly loving kindness for oneself, you know, going back to what I said before, like, it's not humiliating to feel bad and you don't have to dump on yourself and, and, you know, have this idea like I should be perfect. It's, it's a terrible situation. It's incredibly stressful. And, but the stress dynamic is a dynamic and the, in the inner resource or the resource with which we can meet it is going to make a difference. So some of that is the inner resource. Some of that is a sense of community. And if we do loving kindness, it, Classically, it begins with ourselves as the recipient. And so instead of being so down on ourselves for the difficult things we're going through, we can almost have a sense of kind of holding ourselves in in greater compassion. And then it does have us tune into that energy of generosity. Like we do loving kindness practice. One way of doing it is the silent repetition of certain phrases like, may I be happy, may you be happy. May I be peaceful. May you be peaceful. And people often ask me in hearing the instructions for the meditation, who am I asking? And I say, you're not really asking anybody anything. It's not like a petition, uh, but you're offering your gift giving. And that process of caring about somebody in that way, offering them that quality of attention and care is returns us to some stronger place inside of ourselves. And my 
favorite part, which I've long said of the classical loving kindness practice is offering loving kindness to a neutral person, which is someone we don't especially like or dislike. We just feel kind of neutral about them. And usually we say, choose someone in your life that you don't really know, but you see now and then like checkout person in the supermarket or bank teller or something like that. And see what happens is you offer loving kindness to them because almost by definition, that's the kind of person we tend to look through rather than look at. So what happens when we include rather than exclude? In these days, in teaching loving kindness practice, I, th- I usually say, think of someone you can be grateful for that you hardly know. Like who's doing that delivery or who's, I mean, certainly healthcare workers, but somebody that you can think is, is kind of there for you and for us. And hold them in your heart for a moment and wish them well. So let me get you to unpack something. There's a phrase, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to reproduce it faithfully, but something along the lines of offering care returns us to some place mm-hmm. that is stronger in ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, this, this talk, you know, you're, you're willy nilly, wantonly dropping words like heart, holding somebody oh, in your I heart. Even I, I said heart, I thought, oh no, I'm with Dan. <laughs> I don't oh, want to no. overplay. I don't want to overplay this. Everybody knows that I have a bit of an allergy to schmoopy language and whatever. Okay, uh, we'll I move said past energy that. too. That's bad. Yes, too, yes. Yeah. They, you're, you're breaking all the rules, but you're allowed to. You're Sharon Salzberg. <laughs> okay, okay. But but so but th- there is you know one of the reasons why I, why I want to hear you say more about this is because in my opinion, presented in a certain way, loving kindness can can seem just irredeemably syrupy, but you. One of the things I love and I think is quite brilliant about your teaching is that you mm-hmm. you do reframe it as a strength. So can you can you say more about that? Well, I think it really is a strength. I know it's it's so easy to think of it as something sappy or sentimental or or gooey or avoiding pain and uh, all of those things. But I think the reality, because it's based on reality, it's that we are all interconnected and and. Just as an example, all those perhaps many beings we look right through, we ignore, we discount. The question is, what happens when we look at them rather than through them? And we realize, oh, we we do have a connection. Look at that. It's not a question of, the practice is not a question of trying to force yourself to feel something or manufacturing anything or fabricating anything, but it's shifting the way we pay attention so that it's more present, more open, broader, and and more connected. And, and that's what's really important. I just think it's it's such an interesting time, too, because sometimes I, I'm afraid it's going to be like Lord of the Flies, you know, that people are going to just jump on each other in drugstores for disinfectant, you know, wipes or something like that. But And there's so much fear that, of course, some of that is going to happen. But I bet a lot of people are going to use this time and really examine the question of love in their lives and how connected they are or where the, what they pay attention to. You know, is there uh, just a kind of obsession with what's wrong, which could be easy now, but it's easy in ordinary times too. You know, just like, what can I complain about? What don't I have? What's wrong? And and let's put a little attention into what I do have right now. And 
And that will change things. It really does. Uh, you said a bunch of things I want to follow up on. So I'll just name them because I want to come back to them. But mm -hmm. I, so I want to get I want to talk about how we think the species is going to change, if at all, as a consequence of this massive uh, interruption or whatever you want to call it. I also want to talk about you. You use the word love. What a loaded word. You wrote a whole book about love. Um, and I, I want to talk about what the, what that actually means or what it should mean, what it can mean. But let's just stay with the idea of of love or compassion or friendliness or warmth as a strength. You know, as as you know, I've been working on my own book about this. So I, I have not even close to finishing it. So my thoughts as I share them will be perhaps garbage. Can I just say a few things about mm -hmm. where I'm thinking about where I'm at in my thinking? And let's just see if it lands with or if it jibes with you, with yours. I think there are a couple ways I can see it being a strength, at least in my own mind. It, one is I don't think it doesn't feel strong to be to be wrapped up in my own self-centered concerns. That actually feels vulnerable, enfeebling, constricting uh, in an in inner way. It doesn't feel creative or open or free, really. It feels it's a terrible feeling if you're paying attention. And I'm starting to pay attention um, after having lived most of my life in that state. The other thing I would say that get, get where it is a strength is if, you know, you said something about like connecting to what's real or what's true. I mean, you just look at, I, I like science just because it, it's, if it feels real and true to me as a modern, you know, Western materialist, we evolved for cooperation. It, we are, it's wired into us deeply. And you just have to watch your mind when you do something like hold the door open for somebody or run errands for your neighbor or, change your kid's diaper. Well, maybe not that, but, uh, you know, the, if you're, if you're paying attention when you're connecting to another human being, it is an empowered, ennobling state. Even when you're in crappy circumstances, the, you can be sitting at the bedside of somebody who's dying. You can be, I mean, it's, it, you know, brings to mind, I was reading, um, uh, this, letter, this rally the troops letter by a senior physician at Columbia University uh, Hospital to the doctors. And it said something like, yes, this is terrible. We, some of, we, we don't have the, we, we're going to get slammed by patients and we don't have the protective gear we need. A, a, but think about it. Our neighbors are stuck at home idle. We get, and this is the quote he used, the rapture of action. Oh, and, nice. Yeah. And there is something, even when you're taking action that is uh, you know, really difficult. There's something empowering about leaning in to help somebody else. So does that any of that sort of land for you? I think it's really beautiful. The one uh, kind of reframing I would probably do is uh, maybe I would take out the word vulnerability in that first thing that you said. I think that our own self-centeredness leaves us enfeebled, which was a great term that you used, and constricted, because vulnerability is also a potential strength, you know? And um, and I think now that I've, I've always kind of thought of vulnerability as truthfulness or honesty. And so there's that benefit when we're actually truthful, like instead of saying, you're an idiot, you know, to say, I wanted so much more from you is, is a very vulnerable statement. And it actually is genuine communication, you know, rather than 
just lashing out. So anyway, other than that, it was uh, wonderful. I, I agree with you about vulnerable. You can you can use vulnerable in the pejorative as I was, meaning just like you're you're opening yourself up. To, you're you're not as strong as you could be because your your attention mm-hmm. is so. In, inward focused in a way that doesn't feel good. But yes, I, I also agree that vulnerable in the most positive sense is just, yeah, telling the truth in a way that there's something and this is going to sound like, so not me, but th- there's something about it's like this, uh, it, no matter how tired I am, if I'm talking to somebody about, and I'm tired as I'm interviewing you because I've been up since three in the morning with 3.45 on, uh, working on the news, um, if you're talking about the Dharma, or another way to say it would be the truth, the hard truth sometimes, it is enlivening. And that is also true when you're just telling the truth in some, with, to somebody in, in, in interpersonal relations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, I, you know, I loved what you said, because I think it's, it's actually very true that uh, if you talk to somebody like Judd Brewer, who's a friend, who's a psychiatrist and has dealt a lot with addiction, They'll talk about our minds looking for the biggest reward. And it's only because we don't notice that the biggest reward does come from opening up the door for somebody else. Or, I mean, in this situation, it's, it's not punitive. It is an act of, of real caring to self-isolate. You know, it is, it is helping a common humanity in, in a way. And, particularly people who are, you know, at greater risk. And and we should feel the reward of that, you know, within ourselves, because it is it is its own kind of um happiness in a way. And strength. I mean, yeah. I like I like how you in our in the aforementioned live stream the other day you you sort of jokingly referred to not loving the term soft skills. Yeah. Um and you know, I right. I, I like soft power um, yeah. or the the hard thing about the soft things. Or I've been thinking recently, trying to language this, like the vast power of the gooey center. You know, there there is real power in it. And it can be it's on a number of levels. But one of them is what you just talked about with Judd Brewer, the the incredible uh, neuroscientist, psychiatrist and uh, and Buddhist practitioner who who really talks about how the brain is always looking for reward. And if you if somebody can point it out to you that the, one of the greatest sources of reward is, you know, is kindness, is compassion. Well, the best person to point it out to you is yourself, because, you know, that's an observation. It's like, oh, look at that. It's like myth busting. You know, all my life I've been taught it's a dog eat dog world or, you know, I've got to step all over other people to get ahead. And uh, what does that feel like? You know, as you as you bring that up and what does it feel like to think i wonder if my elderly neighbor's okay it's different do the taste test you know just do it and yeah it, hel- it helps to have boosted self-awareness through meditation for sure and that, that that goes to another point i wanted to get at um and i can't remember wh- i i made myself a note to say what i'm about to say or to explore the following with you based on something you said a while ago that i've now forgotten exactly what it was but but in the 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 this meditation practice loving kindness meditation it's you know, where you are getting in touch with whatever you want to call it, your heart, your ability to care. Um, mm-hmm. What's so awesome, not I use that term in the in the most elevated sense, it really does produce awe, is that that this is a skill. 
this isn't just tapping first for me. I often felt like, well, am I, do I, am I, am I even capable of love? You know, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm on the of spectrum course. of self-centered and, but you can get better at this. And that's extraordinary. Yeah. I think it is extraordinary. And I think when all this is in a different phase and I'm going to have a t-shirt made for you saying something like the heart is just a muscle, <laughs> you know, because that's the point. And I think that's, you know, been a difference between, um, like in the West, there's such a strong conditioning around many strong conditionings around kindness or compassion. And one of them is that I sometimes think that we view those qualities as like a gift and you either have it or you don't. And, and certainly like the Buddhist psychology, they're trainable, you could say, or they can be cultivated because they depend on how we pay attention. And they're almost like emergent properties of paying attention differently, like listening to somebody instead of just having categorized and categorized them and dismissing them or not being so distracted, but paying attention or remembering, you know, that person is really doing this thing that's contributing to my life. And I just tend to overlook them, you know, constantly or uh, look at that person struggling. Is that different from my struggles? Maybe not so much. And, and that's why I think the, times we are in you know maybe it does have potential to to bring us together in a different way so let's go to that this is such an interesting question because i mean i I, i'm not going to ask you to predict the future but i'd be interested to get a sense of what your intuition tells you about the impact this as a as the great podcast and radio host krista Tippett, i heard her use a, a phrase the other day in a Hopefully she's okay with this because it was a, a private phone call, but she, I think she'll be fine with this. She called what's happening right now a species moment. And it really is. This is the whole species is, is impacted by this. And are we going to be, you know, beating each other up over Clorox wipes? Or is this going to change the way we live in positive ways? What, what might those positive ways be? I, I wonder... Early in the game, as we are, what what are your intuitions now? I don't know if it's an intuition, if it's fair to say. I have any sense, really. But there is something in me that believes it is very possible that we can live differently. Because here we are, you know, things that we've held maybe theoretically are, are very real. And I think there will always be, you know, some amount of fighting one another over Clorox wipes, probably. But by and large, I think there are such real shifts that are are possible and and people say that and I'm I'm home with my family I'm talking to my family or I am so regretful that I didn't apologize to that person you know or there's also you know tremendous freak out and stress and fear and uh I think that really needs to be paid attention to but uh with one another you know and as a society but I'm yeah, I guess you could say I have hope, you know, uh, which is not a very Buddhist thing to say, but but I, I do have some some sense that some possibly some real good can come out of this. Why do you, why is hope not a Buddhist thing to say? Oh well usually I mean the word hope is is really code for attachment and, and so they talk about hope, fear, hope, fear, hope, fear. Once you have hope, then you're you're falling into the the process of just just cultivating fear but they don't mean that the answer is hopelessness but rather to see what we mean by hope like i know everything's going to work out it's going to work out by tuesday 
it's going to work out in this precise way. We don't know. And it's not that easy anyway. I mean, the upheaval and the disruption and the suffering is, is so enormous. And, and yet the underlying truth that we are all in this together, which has now become a cliche, it's so obvious. And, and the ways we had been living are, they're untenable. They just, they just are not survivable anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but there are, I, I share the, the, the hope, sorry to be a bad Buddhist as well, but, um, but I could also (laughs) see a world in which we, you know, this further entrenches inequality. Yeah. um, Because it's the, the most vulnerable. And again, I'm using that in the pejorative, not to judge those people, but not meaning mostly that they, the weakest in our society are, are likely to suffer the brunt. It's the folks Mm -hmm. out there who are, you know, cleaning bedpans right now, cleaning ventilators, delivering the yeah. food to your house, yeah. have no choice but to work in situations that put them at risk, who are likely to get sick and the least likely to have the the, the means to cover the health care bills. Uh, the people who lose their jobs right now are, are the le- you know, are the least likely to have a savings in order to cover it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see a world in which, you know, massive companies that have a huge, um, uh, huge amounts in the bank do fine and and people who were just clawing their way to, way out of the 2008 recession get shoved right back into a hole. Mm-hmm. I mean it's certainly possible and it would be such extreme suffering and but in a way that's not different that you know that's not that's the way it's been and it, it's just now it's highlighted you know it's it's obvious and the the filters have been ripped away and I don't think that's survivable, basically. You know, I think that that may be what happens. It'd be absolutely dreadful. And and uh, there is so much greed and hatred and delusion in this world and in this society. And it, it could it could happen. But I think there's our work, too, is to not forget, you know, those people. I mean, we you know, perhaps complain about not being able to go outside, but there are people, as you say, who have to go outside and we are counting on them. You know, we're relying on them for food delivery or or whatever it might be. And, and it's incumbent on us not to forget and to fall into those ways of, of real basically privilege and, and just excluding others. And so uh, I just don't think that's survivable. It may be what happens. And then, you know, it's just not going to happen in a successful way. I mean, one cool thing you can kind of already seeing is, you know, already start seeing is the veneration of these people, of many people that we've long ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, doctors and nurses are getting a, a lot of love right now. And I think they probably always have to a certain extent. But, you know, the grocery store checkout people are and the people who are stocking the shelves and the people who are making these deliveries, uh, they, mm-hmm. they're I think we're going to start seeing that sort of invisible army in ways that that many of us may have overlooked in the past. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. 
Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. You know, I'm, what's coming to mind a little bit is as we're talking is, you know, you, I mentioned that I've been working on a book. You you're much closer to completing a book about yeah. it's called Real Change. I actually have um, the galley sitting on my desk here. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. And it's about it coming out in September. Now it got delayed because of mm-hmm. some some things happening in the news. I can't remember what those are. Um <laughs> You, it's about how to, well, you tell us what it's about. And do you agree that it kind of feels quite germane given the current moment? I'll, I'll be really honest and vulnerable. I hope it's germane. Uh, my mind goes back and forth. I mean, the topics are, I think, totally relevant. Like I have a chapter on moving from grief to resilience. I have a chapter on moving from anger uh, to courage. Um, I have a chapter on agency, you know, finding it's a little bit like what you were saying before, finding that sense of agency. What can I do? What can I control? So I don't feel helpless and, and overcome the examples I use obviously are not, you know, from this time. I mean, the book is really done. It's just like the final, final edit and nobody's invited me to add, you know, an addendum. And I hope it will speak to the universal experience. And interestingly enough, um, there's an arc in the book, which was almost unintentional, where I moved from individual action to kind of seeking systems change, uh, having that kind of vision. And then I moved back to individual action, where the last part of the book is about somebody in his relationship with his father. And his father's very sick and dying and how he was with that toward the end. And so... I think that part too is very meaningful. It's like what seems to be the small thing you can do is really what our lives are about, you know? And, and I just think, you know, when somebody has gone through something like this or, you know, like the, the war in the drugstore for the Clorox wipes or something like that, then I hope other examples, you know, will, will seem relevant, not like, the nostalgia for a bygone era, you know, that's like different. I but I, I basically I, I do really think it's it's germane. I keep wondering if we're gonna this is another thing I heard somebody say recently. Are we gonna sort of look at history as pre corona and post corona? I don't know. 
but but so if I recall, the 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 purpose of the book is to talk about taking effective action in the world to help other people. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, can can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, there's also there's um, because you know my thing. I'm a meditation teacher, and so there's sort of the applicability of of different meditations and contemplative exercises in making our action uh more free and uh more i have a a chapter well there's a chapter on self-care but there's a chapter on joy too how like we have to let in joy even if we're in the midst of a struggle and you know we otherwise will get so exhausted and overcome and uh, feel depleted that we have to be able to enjoy some of the small things as well. And, you know, so again, it's about attention and perception and, and where we, where we focus and, and what we include and, and all of that. And and for me, that was really born out of my meditation practice. So I tied the different meditations to the different ideas. So it, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing about the sort of pivot, the arc in the book from individual action to collective action back to individual action is if you're somebody, and I think many of us are, who who cares about, you know, having a positive impact in the world, that's great, but you're likely to burn out if you're actually a mess. Yeah, that's right. Well, we, we've seen that. We know that. And uh, I was also trying to address the people who maybe have more viewed meditation practice or things like that is, is very, um, a certain kind of exercise, you know, for greater peace and, and greater happiness, which of course it is for, but, but not really much about connecting to the world around them, because I think that's also a misunderstanding or it's an incomplete understanding. Maybe that we, we can use meditation certainly for, um, that sense of of being happier but part of that is going to be about being more connected and we we can do we can go beyond just feeling more connected into expressing that connection in different ways yeah it's an interesting point what what it reminds me of is my own arc in practice i mean i i got into meditation not if you had said hey do you want to be more connected to the world i would have said what are you even talking about i do want to be calmer more focused less, you know, caught up in my own nonsense. But over time, the motivation starts to shift. Mm -hmm. In my case. Yeah. Well, in my case, too. And some of that has to do with, well, for me, it had to do with the degree of personal suffering that I was in when I went to India to learn how to meditate. And I wasn't really that interested in other people's problems, you know, but there was so much, ultimately, there was so much liberation from being um, defined by my own suffering or enmeshed in my own suffering that it was like there was room suddenly, you know, to, to actually pay attention to others and in a deep way. I've said this a million times on the show, but I'm going to say it again because it keeps ringing true is that, you know, the, the Tibetan, as I understand it, that one of the Tibetan phrases for enlightenment translates into a clearing away and a bringing forth. It's like you're turning down the noise on your own self-centered uh, concerns, and that just opens the door for all this other stuff to happen. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of that stuff that's 
brought forth, it's hard to talk about it without using words like heart or, you know, uh, love and compassion and all that stuff. But uh, uh, to quote another thing I heard once on this show for that a, a guest on the show told me uh, words that were uttered to her by one of her teachers. Uh, the quote was something along the lines, she was complaining about loving kindness and how schmoopy and annoying it was. And the teacher said, if you can't get comfortable with the cheesiness, you can't be free. Ooh, that's very nice. I like that. So is the rumor true that you posted a loving kindness meditation on abcnews.com? I did. Well, I actually led a loving kindness uh, meditation on the air uh, twice now I've done it. They've brought me on a couple times to talk about anxiety and uh, and how to meditation can be useful in this moment. Mostly I just steal like your ideas and put them on television, pretend they're mine. Um, and I've been... I had seen Ethan Nickturn, former guest on the show, friend of yours, friend of mine, meditation teacher, author, all around good guy, post on Twitter. Uh, hey, you got 20 seconds to wash your hands. Maybe just right. do the love and kindness phrases. Maybe right. be happy, right. maybe be safe, maybe be healthy, may you live with ease. If you do that two times through uh, at, a, at a stately pace, it may be 20 seconds. And so I've just been saying that everywhere. And so I've taught it now twice on television. And I thought I was going to be laughed at. I really thought I was going to be laughed at. Bear in mind, I've been at ABC News for 20 years. This is, um, I literally just got a bottle of wine in the mail from the the president of the ABC network congratulating me on my 20th anniversary. And if you had told me when I walked or took the elevator up into the into this building, uh, the escalator up into this uh, rather intimidating building 20 years ago, I'd be talking about loving kindness on the air. I mean, there's no way. I never would have predicted <laughs> that. I was raised, you know, a Gen X, uh, irony, et cetera, et cetera. So, but the, the, the response to that on the air and on Twitter has been unbelievable. So maybe, uh, maybe the moment has arrived. Maybe the moment has arrived and everyone's kind of tired of happy birthday twice. <laughs> 20 seconds. That's true. But. No, I sense there's a real yearning for there's a, at least a certain segment of the population that feels quite strongly that this is there's there this is a, a real moment where we might turn mm -hmm. outward. So let me let me go back to what I promised before I would bring up with you is love, because one thing, one word you could apply to this sort of external focus. Is love. And yet, as you've written about very very well the word love is just bogged down in lots of yeah. culturally complicated meanings so can you hold forth on that a little bit well i think that's really true and when i look back at the different books i've written and uh if there's a, a kind of theme in in running throughout the different books i think one of my not even necessarily conscious goals but one of my goals has been to redeem certain words you know like love or faith which can be uh, used so cruelly by people and have hurt uh, any number of people. But I think we can redeem those words and, and understand the power in them. And so love being really just a profound sense of connection. It's, it's understanding, I think, in the cells of our being that our lives are intertwined and and because that's the truth of things, that is is very powerful. And um, it does have a lot to do with how we pay attention. I think about all those conversations where I've kind of been there and kind of not and just distracted in some way. And what happens when I actually do arrive and I listen 
And it's such a different sense of the humanity of beings. And it's, it's kind of, for those who are at home and working from home and using Zoom or something, it's quite interesting because we're seeing into people's homes. And like when I was doing the thing with you the other day and it was your cat, you know, just playing around. And, and it's just suddenly it's like, oh, I never really thought you had that kind of wallpaper or, you know, like here we are, you know, we're, we're actually, we're so connected. And because you'll probably ask me about faith, because I brought that up in the Buddhist tradition, faith means offering your heart, not in a gooey sense, you know, but it's like you're what you essentially care about or um, what gives you meaning. It's, it's connecting to something in that way. It doesn't have anything to do with belief or dogma or, not asking questions or being silenced or anything like that. So um, I think we need to redeem those words because they're the words we have and, and, and they can, they can help us right now. Yeah, definitely. Both of those things are true. We need to redeem the words and they definitely can help us right now. And I think, you know, and and I'm, I'm stealing this from you, but love has been sort of pounded, pulverized, warped in all of these tortured in all of these ways, mostly by Hollywood, you know, with the strings have to come in, et cetera, et cetera. But you could define it down in a really useful way of it's, actually just listening to somebody else it's actually just yeah. giving a uh I, don't, I can't say the word i want to use but like giving a crap about somebody else it doesn't have to be grandiose it doesn't have to be white light doesn't need to be there no string music as i said it's it's quite down to earth and i think knocking it off its pedestal in that way for me at least has actually been quite useful i think that's wonderful and and exactly right and we can do that and i hope that's all in your book yes it is um as we as we um, head toward the end of our time together, I use this phrase that I hadn't intended on using it when I came into this conversation of you know Sharon Salzberg's uh, survival guide for for the for this sort of viral apocalypse we're in right now. Um, you know, you, we've talked about mindfulness, we've talked about loving kindness, and you did reference this final thing I want to bring up, but I but I think it might be worth a little bit of a deeper dive here of self compassion. Yeah. Well, you know, we've, talk, we've been talking about love and kindness, but it's uh, to a large extent been externally oriented in this discussion. But the argument has been made. Well, it's interesting, self-compassion, because it, it actually it's a bit controversial in Buddhist circles. I know quite a few people who are Buddhist friends of both of ours who are worried about the phrase because they think it reinforces the self. That you're, it's more. You're going to get more narcissistic in an already narcissistic age where we're all just taking selfies all the time. But, but the argument, and I suspect you will make this, is that if you don't have a warm relationship to your own stuff, it's very hard in an abiding fashion to be positively externally oriented. I think that's very true, and I think it's even hard to accomplish the meditative process in a way. It's like if you sit down, let's say you're you're doing a particular practice where you sit down and you're aiming your attention toward the feeling of the breath, the sensations of the in and out breath. It's usually not that long before your mind wanders and you find yourself in the past or in the future. And, and the question is, what do you do then? You know, uh, do you then chastise yourself for an hour and a half? Or do you think, I knew, you know, I needed a new therapist three years ago. I should have done that. Or I've been meditating all these years. Um, this is a disgrace. Or can you let go and start over, which is really like the 
muscle of of accomplishing concentration and um it it doesn't serve us it's actually not onward leading it's not how to make progress is to just be in that loop of of really harsh self judgment and i think studies are starting to show that that self compassion is not laziness it's not having excuses it's actually the most useful way to learn something or make progress or or accomplish something because it's so much less time wasting though if you get lost in one of those loops first of all you're in terms of the meditation first of all you're adding maybe a great deal of time to the distraction and you're also so demoralized you're so exhausted it's just not helpful and and we extrapolate from that because the point isn't to become a great meditator but to have a different life so what happens when we've blown it when we get overreactive when we've we've lost it uh, and then we come back. What are we going to do in that moment? It's a really important moment. And, and that's why self-compassion is really, it's like fundamental to the process. But I think it's, it's just to pick up on your point, I think it's fundamental. You, you were saying, you said something in there about how it's hard to learn anything. Yeah. I mean, talk, talk about love as a strength. There you go. Right. Because if you, do you want to be effective in the world? Okay. So Great. Um, and I think having some amount of clear-eyed analysis of your own strengths and weaknesses and mistakes and missteps is useful. But do you want to be caught in endless loops of self-laceration? Do you think that's going to up your game? I don't think so. Is in, is instead is an, is having sort of a warm, humorous relationship to your own peccadillos and neuroses, is that more likely to allow you to sort of nimbly um, uh, navigate them? I think, I think yes. And from one of my own experience, I've seen, yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. When I was, um, I was in California in February and I was with this group of people and, uh, one of the people present was a psychologist. And she said at one point in response to something I said, um, the brain cannot learn when it's filled with shame. That's not like a learning opportunity. It doesn't happen in that, in that kind of environment, internal or external. And and so even just being smart about it would lead us to the possibility of self-compassion being very important. That explains all of my problems in math class. <laughs> so I'm in this funny position where um, we're heading up toward the, um, the top of the hour as uh, you and I uh, sit here and chat um, and my the next appointment on my on my calendar. So you're you're in a in a house in Barrie, Massachusetts. Uh, the house is divided into two parts. The ne- yeah. you're on one side, and some shady character by the name of Joseph Goldstein is on the other side of the house. Um, and my next appointment is is to call him. He Today? sent me a, yes, right now actually. Oh, funny! Oh, <laughs> uh, funny! He sent me a text. I was talking to him about something and he said you know uh w- would you consider me uh, w- how about checking on in on me as your elderly neighbor so uh oh that was, that he... makes me feel i should leave a note <laughs> under his door <laughs> oh that's great you know he's on semi-retreat he's coming out tomorrow actually well i guess i'm gonna knock him uh, into the real world with this phone call okay <laughs> well he, he's in touch with the real world because we've had like executive committee zoom sessions and things like that. Yeah. Because you're trying to figure out what to do to, to protect the financial health of uh, insight meditation society, which is a gem and, and uh, a really to be a little lofty about it, a gift to the world and needs to be protected. So that's something, uh, 
that's something that has my attention as well. I'm so glad you're going to talk to him before I have. <laughs> I see him doing walking meditation outside my window, but we haven't spoken. Well, I suspect you'll get plenty of uh, across the hallway, uh, physically distanced FaceTime uh, and, right. and, and, pretty soon. Um, do you feel like we covered everything? Is there something that I should have given you an opportunity to say that I ha- that I didn't? No, I think um, I've loved talking to you. I love I love hearing you and kind of being together in a way. You know, really, yes. it's been great. I have to say, my, I'm in such a better mood after having talked to you than I was. <laughs> That's great. Well, Joseph's the lucky recipient of that. <laughs> yes, you really warmed me up because I was in a pretty bad mood uh, <laughs> earlier in the day. Uh, yeah, so so speaking of having redeemed the word love, yeah, I have a lot of love for you, Sharon. I, you've been a great friend and teacher for a long time. You've taught me so much. So huge pleasure to to sit and talk to you. Thank you. I love you, too. Big thanks to Sharon for that. Really appreciate hearing from her at this time. Before we go, another reminder, TPH Live, 10% Happier Live every weekday, 3 Eastern, noon Pacific. Just go to 10percent.com slash live for your every weekday 20-minute sanity break with many of the world's best meditation teachers, including Sharon and and many others. And finally, uh, before we let you go here, a big thanks to the team that put this show together. Samuel Johns is our producer. Jackson Bierfeldt is our editor. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. Maria, I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that correctly. If I'm not, I'll get it right next week. And of course, thanks to Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan from ABC News. We'll see you on Friday because we're going twice weekly now. We'll see you on Friday for our next episode. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, Uh, You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. 
pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.